LGBTQ podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. Listeners, I hope you've taken your antacids because on today's podcast, we're discussing the current state of student loans. Joining me today are Jane Fox and Winston Berkman Green. I want to give a quick disclaimer before we jump into introductions in today's discussion that Jane and Winston are speaking in their personal capacity today, and what they say may or may not reflect the reviews of their employers. Jane Fox, who uses she, her pronouns, is a staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society in the criminal defense practice. She has been a public defender for 13 years. She currently works in the DNA unit, focusing on forensic science litigation in criminal cases. Jane is also an active member of her union, the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys, UAW Local 2325, where she has been organizing around student debt and public service loan forgiveness, PSLF, for the last decade. To date, and thanks to union organizing, ALAA members, past and present, have had $11.4 million in student debt canceled through PSLF. In 2021, Jane joined the Student Borrower Protection Center as a fellow and has worked primarily on issues related to PSLF. Winston Berkman Breen, who uses he, him pronouns, is the Policy Council and Deputy Director of Advocacy at the Student Borrower Protection Center. The SBTC is a nonprofit policy organization focusing on ending the student debt crisis. Winston leads the organization's state's work, supporting partner policymakers and advocacy groups in advancing consumer protections related to the student loan industry, school misconduct, and debt collection. Prior to joining the SBPC, Winston was the Director of Consumer Advocacy and Student Loan Ombudsperson at the New York Department of Financial Services, the state's financial regulator, and was a legal services attorney prior to that, focusing on litigation related to student loans, debt collection, for-profit schools, and foreclosure. Jane Winston, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So I know that student loans are a very big topic and almost a specialized language, so to speak. Before we jump in, just to kind of make sure everyone has a common language for today's conversation, would you mind going through a couple of the most popular loan acronyms or jargon, so to speak, that we're going to be using for the next hour? So one big one that um, I think sometimes causes confusion is we call the Department of Education Ed. You know, sometimes people use DOE, which is like in New York City, the department, the New York City Department of Education uses DOE. So when you hear us say Ed, Ed does this, Ed does that, we're talking about the federal Department of Education. That's their sort of shorthand. Another big one that I'm sure we'll touch on is PSLF, which is the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. Winston, what yeah. are, tell us more about, I mean, there's way more alphabets right. in there. Yeah. Right. I think that's exactly right, Jane and Shane. So I think one way to think about that question, which is important, is to maybe back into a quick landscape of the system itself. So student loans, there's really multiple types of student loans, but for the, I think, purpose of this conversation, broadly, we can bucket them as either federal student loans, loans made or guaranteed by the federal government, and private student loans, loans made by sort of, you know, your mainstream banker or credit union or online lender. And a lot of this vocab is in the 
federal student loan space. So just as a starting place, there's different types of federal student loans. So you might hear us refer to a direct loan, which has been the main type since 2010, or a FEL, F-F-E-L loan, which stands for Federal Family Education Loan, which are an older type of federal student loan. We'll probably also use the word consolidate at some point. And what consolidate and consolidation means in the federal student loan space is when you are essentially refinancing your loan. You're taking out a new federal student loan to replace your existing federal student loan or loans. So consolidation both has the effect of taking out a new loan, but also combining one or more older federal student loans. And that term consolidation comes up a lot for different policy programs that are available to borrowers, but is specific to federal student loans. And I think probably the last sort of acronym, alphabet soup, and Jane can add, and I may have missed, is uh, IDR, which stands for Income Driven Repayment, which is really an umbrella term for a handful of repayment plans that federal student loan borrowers can use and make their payments a little bit more affordable and peg them to their income. But it's also, like the PSLF program that Jane mentioned, it's also a path towards cancellation and, and debt forgiveness that folks can take advantage of. So I imagine we'll talk a bit about IDR as well. And, and one more that just comes to mind is also um, referencing the CARES Act. So mm. the CARES Act is a piece of legislation in 2020 that gave the legal authority for federal student loans to be paused. So, you know, sometimes people talk about the student loan pause or the CARES Act pause. And so when we talk about the CARES Act, that's what we're referring to. Thank you so much for giving us that starting point. Winston, I heard you use both cancellation and forgiveness. Do you have a preference between the two terms? Yeah, it's a great point. And I sort of, I guess, made it more confusing by using both in the same sentence. So officially throughout federal statute and regulations and programs that you might find if you were to go to studentaid.gov, which is the main federal student loan website, you see those terms used differently. So for the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, PSLF that Jane mentioned, it's forgiveness. It's in the name uh, and it's in the statute. Uh, you see in other programs something called discharge, closed school discharge. If you go to a school and the school closes while you're a student there, you can have your debt discharged, which you know somehow is different than forgiven or canceled. We at the Student Bar Protection Center and a lot of other folks who do sort of pro-borrower economic justice work in this space tend to use the word cancellation as just a general term. Uh, we think it is more objective. It has more of an abolitionist bent as well. But also when you use these other terms, like even in PSLF, public service loan forgiveness, what are we forgiving? What did a borrower do that needs to be forgiven, right? And I know that seems like an overly technical term as we're talking about money and sort of forgiving the existence of a debt, but it is still just a way of getting to the same end of people being debt-free, but not using these sort of normative terms that are loaded and weighted and put some sort of economic responsibility on someone who was just told to go to college, went to college and had to borrow to do it, right? So we generally adopt a cancellation framework, but then sometimes have to refer to specific programs or specific legal rights and authorities that use different terms. Yeah. And I, I think just to echo what Winston was saying, you know, language matters. And I consistently am always trying to remind people when I talk to them to just sort of make that mental switch between forgiveness and cancellation, because like Winston said, what do we have to be forgiven for? So I will even, a lot of times when I'm doing trainings and, and speaking on student debt, you know, I'll even use the the phrase PSL, PSLF cancellation. 
because just trying to reinforce that message. Mm, interesting points about the kind of tone of judgment that's built into forgiveness. And practically speaking, there's no difference for the borrower, right? It's just about getting their account down to zero. So it's not as if one of these terms in federal law has a certain meaning or another, um, sort of generally speaking. Um, there are, when you bring in private loans, and if you think about tax implications, there are different nuances there. But for almost all intents and purposes, cancellation, discharge, forgiveness, these they're all talking about the same thing, which means ending the financial obligation that a borrower has on their student loans. And we know a lot of people, probably not attorneys given the size of the law student loans, but we know a lot of people are waiting to see if their loans are ultimately going to be canceled this year with a very important case that's currently pending before the Supreme Court. Can you take us through a little bit about the latest updates with that case? Sure. So I can start us off in January. Yeah, I'm going to let Winston Yeah, if you want to come in and clean up anything I left out. So generally speaking, the Biden administration came into the White House with a commitment to cancel student debt. That was a campaign promise. A lot of Democratic candidates made similar promises, variety of dollar figures and numbers attached to those promises. And uh, Biden's team last August of 22 announced what their cancellation plan would be. And it would basically be that for income eligible borrowers, they could have up to $20,000 of their federal student loan debt canceled. And that's for individuals who made less than $75,000 a year, uh, I'm sorry, no, $125,000 a year or households at 250. I think that 75 is popping up because they ended up calculating that 90% of that benefit would accrue to people who make less than $75,000 a year. So even though the income, income cutoffs are a little bit higher, it is a a very targeted cancellation program to provide economic relief uh, for people who are in lower income households. The amount of cancellation depends on whether or not you at any point in your borrowing history were ever a Pell Grant recipient. So a Pell Grant is part of the federal financial aid program, but it's not a loan. It's a grant. You don't have to repay it. Anywhere from five to $6,000 a year, the amount changes. And it is for lower income households. Most Pell Grant recipients fall beneath $60,000 a year for household income. So taken altogether, the promise was you know, up to $20,000 of debt cancellation for folks who were making mostly less than $75,000 a year, even though the income cutoff was $125,000 and $250,000. Uh, and this is for federal student loans only. Uh, and it became clear after a couple of weeks that it's for federal student loans only that are this is sort of a technical term, but that are owned or held by the federal government. There are a certain portfolio of older federal student loans. I mentioned those FEL loans, those FFDL loans as one of the vocab words that are out there with private owners, but they're guaranteed by the government. So they're not owned by the government, they're guaranteed by it. Those folks, we could have a whole other podcast about what happened there, but they were not included in this. So that program was plugging along within a few weeks and the, the estimated it, it was estimated by the White House that about 40 million borrowers in the country, that's 40 million out of a total of 45 million borrowers, would be eligible for some level of relief. They released an online application within a few weeks. Within the first two weeks of that, some, I believe it ended up being 20 million people. So basically half of the eligible population had used this online application. That's a real indicator of how much need was there, right? People were really, really itching to raise their hand and get this debt canceled so they could take control of their economic and sort of financial lives. And then unfortunately, there were these lawsuits and sort of getting to your actual question chain about what happened here. So there were actually a couple of lawsuits, but the only ones that ever really became relevant, quite frankly, were two sets, one by two borrowers in Texas who basically were suing to say that they weren't getting enough relief. And so on that ground, one of the entire program shut down. That seemed to be a pretty 
sort of organized strategic lawsuit, not really about these two borrowers, but just by conservative interests that wanted to shut down a Biden administration program that was going to help people. And then there was a second set of lawsuits by um, then six, and I believe it's now down to five, states attorneys general. So these are states with Republican conservative attorneys general who sued on a number of legal theories and basically just said this program cannot proceed, the president doesn't have the authority to do this. Those two cases worked their way up to the Supreme Court pretty quickly because of the significance and time sensitivity of debt cancellation and coming back and recovering from COVID. And there were all arguments on both cases together on the same day in February uh, of this year, so just about five or six weeks ago. We expect to hear the outcome of that case in June and where we are in terms of the relevance of cancellation and James referenced the payment pause, the COVID CARES Act pause, is that payments on these loans are still paused until either the end of June or when we hear from the court. And then payments will resume 60 days later. Practically speaking, those two timelines are going to be aligned. We're going to hear in June, we're probably going to have payments resume on this current timeline unless something changes in August or September. That doesn't really get into the merits or the weeds of the case. If we want to chat about that, happy to do that. But that's sort of the procedural history and posture of where we are and who was contesting these this ex- executive action to cancel student debt. A very succinct summary of everything that's happened in the last year or so. Thank you so much for that. Jane, anything to add? I mean, there's so much to add just in terms of the general framework around the case, why it was brought, certain missteps that the administration sort of took in rolling out this program, um, which we can get into. But, you know, I think that's a really good overview. And again, you know, just one thing about the repayment, because I think this is probably the thing that borrowers are the most anxious about. You know, the Biden administration and the Department of Ed made this announcement. Can't remember exactly when, maybe Winston remembers, but sometime in the fall, you know, sort of in the, as the case was working its way to the Supreme Court, it, sort of indicating that, you know, this timeline of like repayment will resume when we get a decision from the court or, you know, at the end of June, if the decision doesn't come until the end of the Supreme Court's term. And I just want to remind people that that announcement about when repayment is going to start as we've seen over the last, you know, three years is a political decision, right? So the Biden administration does have power to change that decision. (laughs) Whether they will or they won't, again, it's all about the politics. Right. And that actually, you know, maybe it's worth getting a little bit into the weeds and explaining, you know, there are any number of ways that the Biden administration and Department of Education could have effectuated this like in terms of legal authority, right? How how can they do this? And I think, you know, for all listeners, some of whom may be attorneys, some of whom aren't, the federal government is mostly a government of limited authority, right? They have to be authorized to do something before they can do it. And so there needs to be a basis for the secretary and the president, sort of the secretary acting of education, acting on behalf of the president to say, we're going to cancel this debt. First of all, these debts are owed to the government. So there's a sort of traditional creditor relationship there, right? If, if Jane owes me money and I decide I want to let her off the hook for that money, I can just sort of say, you don't owe me money anymore, right? So that's at a baseline that that is there. But there's also a couple of enumerated specific powers that the Department of Education has, and they chose one to use in this instance. And it's from a law called the HEROES Act of 2003, 
there was a post 9-11 era law that basically said in times of war or national emergency, the Secretary of Education has extraordinary powers to go in and basically tinker with the federal student loan system to make sure that borrowers aren't worse off because of whatever the war or national emergency is. As we're all acutely aware, we've been living in a national emergency since you know late February, early March of 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic. That Cures Act authority was the basis for a very quick initial pause before the CARES Act stepped in and Congress paused student loan pay- payments which was just supposed to be for six months or so, and then has been used by two different administrations to extend the payment pause for now going into three and a half years because the Secretary of Education felt like folks were going to be economically harmed by COVID and would be worse off with their loans as a result of that. So that's the same authority and argument that the president is using here for cancellation. History shows that when folks have been in forbearance for a long time, maybe after a hurricane or something like that, there are spikes in delinquencies and defaults when they re-enter repayment. So the, one of the strong bases for this cancellation is to prevent that from happening by canceling ten dollars to $20,000, which they have projected out, would reduce instances of delinquency and default upon re-entering payment. So that's why they sort of pegged payments resuming to the cancellation being resolved, because they want the cancellation to go through before anyone has to return to repayment And if for whatever reason, the Supreme Court says cancellation can't happen, the president and his team will have to regroup and look at their authorities and figure out what their options are at that point. But that's the basis for connecting these two distinct programs, payment pause and cancellation. Can you tell us a little bit more about the default rate pre-COVID for borrowers? Yeah, it was surprisingly high, higher than other consumer credit products. Um, So the national, I'm going to be off at one or two percentages here because I don't have the figures at my fingertips, but they, they, they sort of convey um, the state things we're in was about 15%, 13 to 15% nationwide default rate for federal student loans. That's very high, just to put that in context, right? That is sort of like 2008 foreclosure rate high. Uh, it is It was a sort of quietly burning, mostly low income person affecting crisis that was going on well before COVID. And there is really no reason to think that it won't return to that level, if not higher, when payments resume. So turning back on a system that was already broken also does not seem like a good policy idea. So doing as much as possible to improve the system and help particularly high-risk borrowers navigate the system or get out of it altogether before payments resume are are both really, really good policy ideas and are appropriate policy interventions. Yeah. And and just to add to that, you know, from the sort of broader, like less in the weeds policy wonk type perspective, but to pull back for just sort of an average person, I think people across all political ideologies and affiliations, I think can all agree that people should not be forced into repayment on debt that is going to be canceled, right? We don't want people to be making payments on debt when they may have a source of relief. I th- you know, um, like imagine if, you know, your bank collected extra payments on your mortgage just just because they could, <laughs> because they had, you know, some leverage over you. And I think that that is really one of the major reasons why people and activists are really nervous about this return to repayment, especially if the Supreme Court rules against against borrowers 
because then you've got just so many different layers of chaos going on. And there are a couple of programs, which we can get into explaining, that are on the horizon for late 2023, now kind of pushed back to 2024, where there are going to be some other avenues of full cancellation for a lot of borrowers. And we might be, you know, if, if repayment resumes before those programs get a chance to take effect, then we may have many borrowers who are in that crunch of they will make, you know, six months or 12 months worth of payment and then get their total debt wiped out, right? So there are a lot of moving parts, but I think that, you know, that is a is a real concern. The default, people heading into default or people making payments on debt that is quickly going to be canceled come 2024. That makes a lot of sense. I do want to drop just a quick footnote that we're recording today on April 17th, 2023. We're talking today with the assumption that the case won't be decided until late June as the most contentious Supreme Court cases historically are, but anything can change between now and the spring. So I just want to make sure we preserve that before we continue on with our conversation. Can you take us a little bit into the weeds and the merits of the case? I know it's dangerous to kind of predict where Supreme Court cases might be going, particularly after oral argument, but I'd love to hear if you have any insight you can share. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, with this court, you never know, we might get a leaked opinion this afternoon and then, you know, all spend the next six weeks figuring out what that means. Apparently there's maybe going to be some open decisions. Somebody asked me if there was going to be a decision this Friday and I'm not prepared for that. Yeah, who's to, who's to say? It's anyone's game. Well, it's not anyone's game. It's, you know, a couple of folks in robes game. So before we even get into the merits, you know, I think there's actually some non-merit. There are some procedural reasons why this case should, the, the lower court's injunctions of the program and orders vacating the program um, should be overturned and, and the, the Biden policy should be allowed to proceed. And as many of the listeners may know, but I think it's worth explaining for those who don't, there is this concept, this simple but critical concept in American jurisprudence called standing. You know, are you the right person to be bringing this lawsuit? We can't all run into court and make claims on behalf of other people, usually, right? You know, there are some instances where that's appropriate. And so both of these cases, but particularly the state's attorneys general cases that are that are a bit more sophisticated and a bit more sort of politically oriented, have major standings questions. You know, in particular, how are these states harmed, right? You know, it's not just about having a connection to the policy. You have to show like, some form of injury to be making a claim and to walk into court and get the relief. And the court has to be able to redress that injury, right? Here, these states haven't articulated a very, in our opinion, strong standing claim. They're arguing in part that they are harmed because canceling this debt right now at a time when canceled federal student loan debt is not considered taxable because of another law, ARPA, the American Recovery Plan Act, which through 2025 provides that federal student loan debt that's canceled is not taxed as, as income. Sometimes canceled debt is considered income because it's it was free money at some point. The states are saying that if you cancel this debt right now, we can't tax it. And so we've lost that tax revenue that future speculative tax revenue. Also in general, and I'm not a Supreme Court litigator, I'm not a tax attorney, I'm, I, I used to be, but I'm not even a litigator anymore. Um, so all of those caveats, 
generally don't, you know, meet the standard for standing, right? That's not a concrete injury. It's not, it's not proximate. It's we're talking about, and also tax, tax-based standing is typically sort of frowned upon the idea that one change over here affects how your tax laws over there work. It's, it's you know, that's, that's not how that be. The state could change their, states can pass laws and change their tax laws to say, we don't care what the federal government is, is doing. We're going to tax this, right? It's not like the uh, ARPA law said that no one can tax this. It just said it will be federally taxed. And these are states that sort of mirror federal tax code. So the state standing is pretty speculative and it would, well, that's part of the state standing, I'll say. The other half is that there is a particular, uh, the state of Missouri is suing in particular because there is a student loan servicer called Mohila that some folks may be familiar with because it has taken over the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Administration. So if you are a PSLF seeking public service working borrower and you have filed any paperwork raising your hand as such, you your loan will be with Mohila. They are claiming that Mohila is a arm of the state and that Mohila is going to lose its fee-based revenue for servicing loans from the federal government if we cancel all these loans. Also query whether that is you know, an appropriate basis for standing a company that has a contract to service loans and they get a couple dollars per head for the loans that they're serviced for activity. The federal government decides to change its loan system and you get fewer accounts to service and you lose money. Is that actionable, right? Is that even something you can go to court for? It's the federal government's accounts. They, they should be able to deal with the accounts that they want. But more critically here, and this is what you heard the Solicitor General, who did a fantastic job defending this case, arguing against standing on this ground, is that it seems pretty clear that Mohila, if they were the ones who had a problem with this, should have been the ones in court. But they did not sue. They are not part of this lawsuit. And the state is saying that they're suing on behalf of Mohila. But the historical relationship between the state and Mohila is one of severance. They are not the same thing. Mohila was created by state statute, but was created to be an independent sue and be sued. We heard this over and over in oral arguments. If Mohila can sue and be sued, then why isn't it here suing, right? In the past, when Mohila was sued, the state never stepped in to defend it. Their financial interests are distinct and separate. And it seems like that is a, it was a political story they wanted to tell that Mohila was being harmed and the state was swooping in to help its, you know, this, this arm of the state. But it seems like that is, the facts just don't bear out that way. Those are the sort of two bases for standing from the states, which again was the more sort of threatening lawsuit. What is so concerning, Shane, is that if, you know, and again, for folks who aren't uh, litigators or attorneys, you know, you have to get over that threshold of standing before you really get to the merits of it. So what would be so concerning is if they get over the threshold, that really could change the way that courts interpret standing. They'd have to, you know, you know, we've seen this court do it in recent years, but they'd have to really overturn some precedent and really loosen, you know, and sort of throw open the, the, the doorways to the court system in terms of who can come and sue and on behalf of whom and over what injury. So that's very concerning in and of itself. If we do get to the merits question, right, the actual does the secretary have the authority? Solicitor General Prelogger also made a very strong argument about the plain language of this Heroes Act of 2003, which basically said the Secretary of Education in a national emergency can waive or modify any law to make sure the borrowers aren't worse off. And walking through the words of that statute, we were in a national emergency. They were waiving or modifying the rules of the, of the um, student loan system to allow for this cancellation. They did it in a targeted way to make sure that it's people who are more likely to be economically worse off. You know, we saw, again, a lot of that benefit is going to accrue to folks who make less than $75,000 a year. And that authority allows for en masse action, not 
hyper-individualized assessment. So they don't have to go in and say, all right, is Winston harmed? Is Jane going to be worse off? Have I changed? You know, they're allowed to do it this way. And they had a voluminous body of economic analysis supporting it. So there too is this funny thing where the plain language of the statute and its, its intent seems to convey this authority to add into the secretary and then therefore to the president since this is an executive agency. And then we're going to have these conservative judges who were very, very skeptical of this, but who are traditionally textualists and originalists, right? And who would look to the words first and then have a very narrow cabined in interpretation of what could have possibly been meant here. So, you know, we should, if we get to the merits, that's already a huge red flag that the system and the court, you know, something's not working. And we're seeing a lot of advocacy from the bench from the conservative justices to even allow this to get to the merits. And then again, on the merits, you'd have to really ignore the plain language of the authority that Congress gave to the secretary to, to say that um, he or she does not have the authority to effectuate this program. So there's lots of moving pieces here, right? All of which can be concerning, shouldn't be concerning, but in this day and age are very concerning just because the way the court has demonstrated its sort of lack of respect for, for, for precedent, for executive authority, for conveyances of Congress, to the extent they're going to bring up something called the major questions doctrine, which is this made up doctrine from a few years ago, saying that major questions have to go to Congress and policy questions of a certain scale and economic import shouldn't be made by executive agencies like the Department of Education. You know, two ironies there is Congress already decided to give this authority, right? Major question decided. In, in, a, in a national emergency, please have the secretary waive or modify, do whatever they need to do. So Congress decided that 20 years ago, just because they don't like what they said 20 years ago, doesn't mean that they can come back in and say that shouldn't be valid. The second sort of major questions doctrine rests on a separation of powers theory that, you know, you shouldn't have the executive branch deciding things that Congress should, because Congress is the elected body and the executive is only elected person. The irony here is the judiciary is over here, an unelected body making policy decisions, right? Every decision is a policy decision. So the whole major questions framework is really robbing people of the level of democratic accountability that does exist. We elect congressional members of Congress. They afforded authority to the executive. The executive is using that authority. And then here, these nine unelected people, five or six of them are going to come in and say, that's undemocratic. That's a separation of powers issue. And we're going to shut that all down. So that's my little you know, armchair assessment of what's going on. Again, I'm not a Supreme Court litigator or even a litigator these days, um, but that's sort of what we've been seeing. We will be watching this case very closely on the standing issue in relation to 303 Creative, which we've discussed on the podcast as well. Between these two sets of cases this summer could be very different curriculum in the fall for civil procedure. Right. You had mentioned earlier some sidesteps about how the Biden administration had rolled out the proposal. Oh program, and I wanted to circle back to that. Well, you know, I think Winston maybe touched on this. So one of the one of the arguments is that they, you know, the, the Biden administration in rolling out this program chose to use the legal authority from the 2003 HEROES Act, which has this provision about national emergency. But many legal scholars and activists had for months, maybe even years, had discussed with the administration that if they were going to cancel student debt, that they should use a different legal authority, that they should just use the authority under the 1965 Higher Education Act, which many legal scholars believe just has a, a broader authority to cancel debt that isn't necessarily tied to this question of are we in a national emergency. I'm not, I'm not an expert on 
you know, the nuances between heroes and higher education, but that's sort of the, the basic premise. And that many, many lawyers, many actors were saying, look, please, you know, they, they, they really urge the Biden administration to go that road. And I can't speak to why it is that the Biden administration decided not to use that, go down that road, but here we are. <laughs> and I don't think any of the activists or policy makers want to be in the position of, well, if we lose in the Supreme Court, we told you so. <laughs> but there is a thinking that if, you know, if if the Supreme Court does rule against this lawsuit, which is brought on, you know, on, you know, the Biden administration's attempt to cancel student debt using the HEROES Act, that there is a potential that the administration could pivot politically and say, okay, great, we're still going to do it. Here's a different legal authority and kind of start that whole process over again. Again, sometimes there are legal questions and sometimes the moves that we make are really purely about, do you have the political will? Do you have the political bravery to do something? How much do you truly believe in the policy? The policy being that student borrowers should get debt relief, right? How far are you willing to go? Or are you just going to throw up your hands, give up when an illegitimate Supreme Court, you know, makes like terrible ruling? Are you going to use every tool in your toolkit? And I think that that is, you know, people are really on the edge of their seat waiting to see how far can the Biden, will the Biden administration go? You know, the other thing is one of the things that I personally believe was a misstep was when they announced that they were going to cancel a certain amount of student debt, and I believe that they should have just canceled student debt and not put a cap on it, they waited. They listened to the more conservative people within the administration who were really pushing these sort of means testing, austerity measures onto the program. And that window of time, those, you know, six or seven weeks really allowed their enemies to file these lawsuits. And, and that's exactly what activists said could happen. They said, announce the program and just, you know, hit, hit the button that brings the accounts to zero. Like you do not need an application. You don't need these income caps. You don't need all of this means testing it is really going to torpedo the policy. And now we are where we are seeing all of the things that um, have happened. And again, it's a political question, right? It's a question of how are you going to implement your policy? We can go round and round and having arguments about what could have been the best rollout. But I think it's really obvious to the people who've been working on this issue for many years that they did not have as much political courage as they could have had in that moment because we all know, right, the landscape of this would have been very different if the Republicans had been put in a position of filing lawsuits for debt that was actually canceled, right? Like then they would have had to make the political decision to be the people who said, yeah, your account went down to zero and I want to put the, I want to put the money back right? I want to put the debt back. If the Department of Ed had said, we did, we canceled those loans. They're gone. They're done. Those borrowers have a $0 balance. Think about how much more difficult it would have been for the forces who are working against this relief to do that. They probably 
would have made the decision that politically that's a very bad look for us. We don't want to be those people. People are happy that their debt got canceled. And I guess we just lost this one. So, you know, to my mind, those are some of the sort of missteps that the administration made in in determining kind of like the political calculus of how to get this done. And they could still do that, right? And I'm so I'm of the opinion that, you know, even if we lose in the Supreme Court, if we would truly want to meet the moment, if you really want to play political hardball, if I were in the Biden administration, if I were President Biden or President Biden's chief of staff, what I'd say, okay, we lost under the HEROES Act, fine. I'm going to write a new executive order. I'm going to use the Higher Education Act and Secretary Cardona hit the button. We're just going to cancel it. Let them see what they can do about that now, right? Let them try to really, you know, frame it that way. Do I think that that's what the Biden administration is going to do? Probably not. <laughs> but you never know. Joe Biden has surprised us. You never know. <laughs> that's true. Anything could happen. Let's say that basically nothing happens, right? Like the worst case scenario, program is undone by the Supreme Court. Biden administration says, look, we tried. This was shot down. We're letting this go. We're not going to keep going. Where where does that leave us in terms of the reforms to IDR and PSLF for borrowers to keep going? So I, I could talk a little bit about that. So, you know, there are a few, I mentioned before that there's a few things coming on the horizon. And so so two two things have sort of been happening while, I should say more than two things, but a few things have been happening while student debt um, cancellation has been going on really since the CARES Act pause was put into effect. So, you know, since the Biden administration came on, they've made some changes to some of the ongoing programs that have really increased the relief that people are getting and fixed some of the past programs. So the one of the first things that they did was in October of 2021, they issued a policy call with regards to the to PSLF. Okay, so for many years, PSLF was created by a law passed in 2007, the CCRAA, the College Cost Reduction Aid and Assistance Act, (laughs) I think. And that is the law that created PSLF. But PSLF, because it has a bit of a time lag, we didn't really see borrowers starting to get relief under the program until late 2017. So under just to, you know, for listeners who don't know. So the public service loan forgiveness program was designed to allow people working in public service. And that's broadly defined as essentially any, if you are working for a government, so that could be the federal government, a state government, a local government, a tribal government, a county government, just any, any government, any government agency, or a not-for-profit organization. There's some other work that qualifies under PSLF, but those are the broad strokes. That if you have student debt and you work in qualifying employment and you repay your loans under a specific type of repayment program, if at the end of making 120 payments, or if you were to go straight through 10 years of service, the deal is you get your student debt canceled. Now there are like a number of little technical pieces to this program in terms of you had to have the right type of federal student loans. 
you had to be paying in the right type of repayment plan, which is an income-driven repayment plan. You had to make on-time payments. There's a lot of, there were just a lot of little technical requirements under PSLF. And for essentially the first almost decade of this program being in existence, there was little to no publicly available information about how to do this program. The Department of Ed for many years didn't even have forms. They did not have any information on their website. Colleges and universities were incredibly behind the ball in terms of advising students. You go to the financial aid office, people would not be told about PSLF. People would not be told how to manage their loans to get into the program. Employers didn't have information. There's just like a blackout of it, of information. And in 2017, when borrowers started getting, applying for the program, there was a huge, completely expected rejection rate. I'd say, I think it was about 98% of people applied were rejected. And that was due in part to the fact that the government put no effort into educating borrowers how to navigate this fairly technical program. It's not impossible to navigate, but borrowers needed assistance and they were not given assistance. And that's the main reason why the rejection rate of PSLF was so high. And it kind of stayed that way for probably the next, you know, three or four years. And this was always a problem. And so in 2021, after many years of advocates sort of pushing the department to say, look, we've got to do something to get these people who were rejected, but who did the service, you know, who have the years of service, how can we sort of relax some of these rules to get them over the finish line? And so that's what the limited PSLF waiver was meant to do. And I think it's been, you know, we're still getting data about it, but fairly successful. So in 2021, the Department of Ed announced sort of a relaxation around certain rules to allow people to apply for PSLF and get their previous payments qualified. So a lot of the rules were relaxed. Like one of the major impediments to PSLF had been around these change in federal student loans. So some people who made, borrowed, made, borrowed money with a FELL loan prior to 2010, they could never get their loans qualified. So they kind of relaxed the rules around if you consolidate, okay, your past payments are going to count. People who had been in made late payments, people hadn't been in the right repayment plan. They sort of massaged a lot of these rules and they essentially said, look, take a few steps. The main thing we want to see is proof of your public service work. And if you can get all of those things together, we'll give you PSLF, even though you want, wouldn't necessarily have qualified under the you know, traditional PSLF rules. And the waiver lasted, for, they did that for a year. So October of 2021 to the end of October of 2022. And I don't have numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, millions of people applied and we are still seeing applications being processed. And so, you know, the rates of people who are now able to take advantage of PSLF has really gone up. And I've seen this you know, personally in my work organizing around in my union, which is predominantly public interest attorneys and public interest legal service workers. So 
I'd say about 100% of people in our union, if they have federal student loans, qualify for PSLF. So we made the decision when the limited waiver is coming on to really do a ton of training. We did, did so many trainings, emails, sort of shepherding people through this process. And now what we are starting to see is that our members are getting their debt canceled. And predominantly, the people who are getting their debt canceled are the sort of people who have been paying for more than 10 years working in legal services or public interest work for more than 10 years are getting their debt canceled. So, you know, slowly but surely the applications are being processed and thing people are, you know, things are trickling in. So the limited waiver was one of the programs that I think the Department of Ed really, they needed to do it. They should have done it well before. I think some of the changes that they made under the waiver should have been made permanent or that should have been, they should have made the waiver longer, but millions of people are going to get full cancellation through PSLF thanks to the waiver. So one of the, one of the other programs that I'm actually very excited about is called the income driven repayment account adjustment. <laughs> so income driven repayment was another program that was started. What's it? I think like the late nineties, right? IDR first started in the, Yeah, it's been around for a while in one form or another. Yeah, in one form or another. So income-driven repayment is a form of repaying your student loans, your federally backed, your federal student loans. And it's, it kind of upends the idea of student loan debt. Okay. And this is going to go into a couple of areas that I think kind of swirl around this idea of like how the student debt crisis got so bad and like what happened to borrowers. So in income-driven repayment, you really stop thinking about your student loans as a traditional form of debt. Most people think student debt, they think that it's structured exactly like, I don't know, a 30-year mortgage, right? Okay, it's the cost of my degree plus my interest rate over the term of my loan, a 30-year loan, right? Like, Because like that's the simple math of how you would determine your mor- monthly mortgage payment. Because the point of your mortgage is that eventually you pay off the debt and you own the asset, right? And people think it's the same thing with your degree. Eventually you pay off the debt and you, you know, quote unquote, own your degree or you're just done paying for your education. And that's not what income-driven repayment does. Income-driven repayment takes away the emphasis on what your total debt is. You actually don't really care what your total debt is when you're in income-driven repayment. Because in income-driven repayment, your monthly payments are calculated on a formula that is tied to your income and not your debt. So it's a great deal in theory for borrowers, right? Because It's really asking the question, what can this individual borrower afford to pay based on what their income has been in the last 12 months, right? And it's a deal with the government where the government is saying, we're happy to take less. We don't need to take a a monthly payment from you that pays down your principal or even touches the interest. We will take whatever we have determined is the right amount for you to pay based on how much money you make. So under income-driven repayment, many borrowers based on their income might qualify for a $0 a month payment. 
that was that's the point of the program, right? To give borrowers relief. You make you're working, you have student debt, you make a you make a very low income, you enroll in income-driven repayment. The government might say, okay, for the next 12 months, zero dollars is fine, or fifty dollars is fine. And under income-driven repayment, what happens is you really have to shift your mindset in thinking that I'm paying a bill. I'm not paying down my debt because necessarily if I'm paying less than the principal plus the interest, what happens to your total debt? It's going to go up, right? It's going to go up over time. There's going to be this negative amortization of your debt. And borrowers were never really educated on that relationship because if you're educated about the relationship between those two things, you're kind of relief, right? You're kind of like, I have freed myself from whatever number is the government is saying is my total debt because I don't care what my what that is. I just care, can I afford my monthly IDR payment, right? That's sort of the premise of this. Um, like for instance, like I got PSLF. When I graduated from law school in 2009, I had about $95,000 in student debt. When I got PSLF in 2020, I had $195,000 in student debt, but I didn't care. I didn't care, who cares? It was getting canceled. I wasn't paying it. So sorry, this is like a long backing into what the IDR adjustment is. So for many years, borrowers were not told that they could go into an IDR plan and pay less, or they were enrolled and they didn't understand it, or they were in forbearance. It was just not managed. And the people, even the people who were properly enrolled in IDR, IDR, like PSLF, gave borrowers cancellation after 20 years for undergraduate loans or 25 years for graduate school loans. But the problem with IDR and how it was administered was literally no one kept track of how many payments you had made. So let's say you want to get your, you went to grad school and that and 25 years is 300 months of qualifying payments under IDR. Nobody knew how many payments any borrower had made? How close were you to 300 payments? When the first borrowers became eligible for IDR cancellation, and this is a figure that's been fight, cited a lot, I think thir 32 people got their loans canceled. Like 32, <laughs> 32, right? Because nobody had figured out how to administer this program. So again, the Department of Ed reached a point where they realized we have to fix this and we have to give people credit. So they announced in April of 2022 that they were going to do this big account adjustment and it was supposed to take place this summer, but they just recently announced that it's going to be pushed back to most more likely 2024 which is what's gonna happen is borrowers with federal student loans are going to finally get an accounting and be told how many payments they have made towards income-driven repayment cancellation. And there's gonna be a lot of sort of smoothing over as they're in terms of people's payment histories, kind of in similar to the way the PSLF, the limited PSLF waiver was dealt with in the sense that people are just going to get credit for months in repayment. Then it if you were in I properly enrolled in an IDR program or not, if you had the right loan type or not, 
you are going to start to get credit. And certain periods of forbearance and deferment are going to count. Like, I'm not going to get into all the details because it's like very, very niche to just like go through each single prong. But the point is, in 2024, you are going to see people who've been in repayment for 20 years or 25 years just get their debt canceled. And the people who haven't been in repayment quite that long, maybe they have 17 years or 18 years or whatever the case may be, they are going to get this clarity that has never existed before for student borrowers, where they're going to get to know, okay, I need 300 payments and I've got, you know, 275 or 200, let's say 276 payments. What does that mean? I've got two more years of payments to make, right? Or maybe I have 10 more years, 10, 10 months of payments left, right? Like people will finally have clarity. They won't be looking at their student debt and thinking, I don't, I'm never going to be able to pay the balance. I just guess I just have to keep doing this forever. And so this is a program that the Department of Ed hasn't really talked about very much, but it's coming and it's going to be really transformative. We've seen sort of a glimmer of how a program like fix like that can work with the people who benefited from the limited PSLF waiver. And it's been life-changing for those people. I mean, I have people, I have a inbox a folder in my email of emails from people literally just writing to me saying, I got my letter, I'm in tears. Or sending me a screenshot of their $0 balance. Is this real? Right? So like, and that's just for people in, you know, the small, the PSLF borrowers are a much smaller group. Like the income driven repayment adjustment is going to be, I don't know. Do you know, Winston, like tens of millions of people, I don't know if they have an idea of like how many people there who are going to get full cancellation immediately, but it's going to be huge and people don't even really know it's coming. And that kind of ties back to like the earlier point we were making about sort of the timing of turning on repayment and the Supreme Court case. And then you've got this other big program that's looming like why don't we just keep it paused? Like, just let, let these wheels, you know, keep turning until we get as many people to out of debt as possible before we even take one payment from a borrower. And, you know, just for your listeners, cause like I kind of glossed over some of the details, like if they're interested in finding out more about the IDR adjustment, you know, strongly, strongly recommend that they go to studentaid.gov, which again, it's the Department of Ed's borrower website, but also Student Borrower Protection Center has created like an excellent website for borrowers called cancelmystudentdebt.org, where there's resources on Biden's debt relief plan on PSLF and some information on just the IDR adjustment. So I, I just tell people if you're interested, go to those resources. And in particular, I'm going to shout this to the to the Gen X listeners, people who took out loans prior to 2010. If that was you, if you went to college or graduate school and took out student loans prior to 2010, most likely you have this particular type of student loan called a FELL loan, and you are going to need to take some steps to take advantage of these programs. I don't want to like get into it, but if that's you, go read about this stuff because you don't want to miss out.
Yeah, I was just going to sort of highlight a through line there really quickly, but I think Jane covered most of it, which is that there are some action steps for some of these other programs so people shouldn't sort of just sit around, but also just to really underscore that borrowers only options are not held up in the Supreme Court right now. All these programs that Jane just talked about are not being challenged. We don't foresee challenges. They were congressionally created uh, by bipartisan Congress, if you can imagine. And so, you know, especially these two PSLF and IDR opportunities are are also ways to get entire debt canceled, not just ten or $20,000. So a lot of people very understandably are very focused on what's going on with the Supreme Court, but should, should really take a look at these other programs because um, in many instances, uh, it's better to act before hearing about the Supreme Court than to wait and see what happens for any number of reasons, but just to, to at least take the steps to educate oneself and identify any relevant deadlines before June would be would, would be advantageous. And again, those are the PSLF programs and the IDR programs, and you can go to studentaid.gov or cancelmystudentdebt.org. But don't, don't feel like you need to wait to hear from the Supreme Court to take control over your loans. It's always nice when we have good news to share on the podcast. That sounds like a really empowering action item that folks at home can be working on now. And we'll be sure to share those resources with the release of the podcast as well. I want to take things in a slightly less empowering direction, a different direction, and talk about the role of servicers in exacerbating the student loan debt crisis. Unlike other consumer financial products, you don't really have much of a choice in terms of who is servicing your debt, and they can really impact the quality of your day-to-day life and the accuracy of your loan servicing. So I guess I pose this to either or both of you to kind of talk about servicer behavior, good or bad, and how that's impacted where we are today. Right. So I think that's a really, you know, accurate framing if you don't really get to pick your servicer, but even taking a step back just to make sure everyone's on the same page and what even are servicers, right? So servicers are the companies that handle the day-to-day aspects of your loan. They process your payments. If you call the number for customer service on your loan statement, you're calling your servicer, not your lender generally. So again, your lender could be the federal government or it could be a private lender. Federal and private student loans all have servicers for the most part. It's a relatively small population, sort of a condensed, consolidated market of these companies. At the federal level, there's just a handful of these companies that service student loans, and you're probably familiar with many of them, but Ohila is one that we mentioned. There used to be one called Fed Loan. There's one called NowNet. You know, these are Navient, used to be a federal student loan servicer until about a year and a half ago when it left the federal student loan market, but it still services student loans. So the reason why servicers are so problematic when they're bad <laughs> is because they are both handling the actual mechanics. You know, if they mess up on applying your loan payment, you might be deemed delinquent for something that you made a payment on. Or if you have multiple loans and you make a lump sum payment, they might apply it, in it but it's a little bit short of the total amount. They might imply, apply those payments in a way that uh, doesn't maximize your benefit, which is to say they apply it to sort of lower cost loans first, leaving you with, under, with un or underpaid expensive loans that are going to become delinquent and might end up in default. But also because borrowers, this is confusing stuff, right? And borrowers should be able to call their servicers. Servicers put themselves out there as being available to help borrowers. Uh, And when they call and get bad or incomplete advice, that's a huge problem. Sometimes it's just a problem. Sometimes it's a violation of law, right? So there are protections out there against misrepresentation, against giving inaccurate information, um, against servicers putting their own financial interests over the well-being of the borrowers whose loans they service. And there is a history of all this poor servicing. So basically all the programs that Jane mentioned and sort of a large part of how we got to the sort of student debt crisis today is the story of poor servicing. 
So we, I think correctly, attributed a lack of information about PSLF a few minutes ago to the federal government. But it's also fair to say that servicers were directing people away from PSLF, away from IDR. It was in the servicers' financial interest to keep people in forbearances and other programs that would get them further from debt cancellation or relief, but keep them on the servicers' books for longer, right? Because they were getting paid on a sort of fee basis. So there have been, and this is no longer a question of fact, there have been federal and state investigations against certain servicers, and we just know that this is happening. And unfortunately, despite that, we see it still happening today. Some states have taken action in the form of lawsuits. Other states have decided to more closely regulate the student loan servicing market. Federal student loan servicers, private student loan servicers, states have the authority to come in and say, all right, you're gonna service loans in my jurisdiction, here's how you're gonna do it. You wanna do that, you gotta get a license, you have to pay us some fees. You have to let our financial regulators come into your shop every once a year or two and make sure that you're doing things sort of correctly. That is what the agency I used to work for in New York, the Department of Financial Services did, uh, and it started licensing student loan servicers in 2019. This is a relatively new phenomenon of having student loan servicer specific regulation. Basically, the 2000s and early 2010s, they, it was just the Wild West out there. And then in 2015, states started to license servicers. Now, by our count, about 18 states do this. And so borrowers in 18 states have particularized protections with respect to their student loan servicers. Doesn't mean that borrowers in, the, in those other states don't have protections, but they have sort of general consumer protection, which is fantastic, but it's going to be a little bit harder to administer and a little bit more work to prove that a servicer did something wrong. This is an ongoing struggle, right? So some of these servicers are contractors of the federal government. They have a contract with Ed to service these loans. And so there's a little bit of political awkwardness occasionally uh, for how to handle that, both within the federal government from one agency directed to Ed or by states uh, not wanting to step on the Biden administration's toes. But the reality is that these servicers are just not doing their job very well. We see this through the misinformation, but we also see this through you know hours long wait times and people call and it's insult to injury when they're calling to correct an error the servicer made, right? It's like, you know, they, they do something wrong in their account and then they can never reach the customer service rep to get it taken care of. So servicers are really, really wrapped up in this whole story. Um, they are explicitly the impetus for the IDR account adjustment that Jane said servicers were so messing up the IDR system that the government had to step in, say, we're going to fix it all retroactively. And then going forward, we're going to be much clearer with our servicers and with our borrowers about how this program works. The final thing I'll say about servicers is people should be cautious about that, right? You, you generally speaking, don't get to pick your servicer or you do, but it's from a very limited pool. And if you experience an issue, you should file a complaint with the Federal Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, with your state attorney general, with your state regulator. Uh, one complaint should be sufficient. If you've got the time, file it, file it with all of them because uh, there are bad practices and patterns going on out there. And the more the government can hear about it, the easier it is for them to allocate the time and resources and political willpower to ending that and, in and investigating the practices to, to end them and shut it down. Yeah. And just to add to that, you know, from what I see, like doing organizing and, and working directly with borrowers, there's no doubt in my mind that student loan servicers have just perpetrated decades of incredible harm, like real harm to borrowers, both mentally, financially, and it's very difficult to sort of unwind that those years of distrust for borrowers. And I think that this is sort of like a piece that 
the powers that be in the Department of Education, I don't know if they care about it or don't care about it, but they've certainly missed the mark that a lot of what needs to happen to fix um, the current crisis with student debt is repairing distrust and getting servicers either in line or just completely out of the equation because borrowers that it's so ingrained in them that there's no place to go. There's no place I can, there's no trusted source that it's very difficult to convince people to come in and now, you know, take advantage of the programs that do exist. So, you know, a lot of my work around PSLF and speaking to borrowers in my union and I, and I anticipate it's going to be even more so when the IDR adjustment comes along is getting people to just believe <laughs> that the programs have rules, that the programs that you can, you can get your debt, your loan sort of like in line to take advantage of them and that it, it, it does work. And, and I want to just say to your listeners, this is a problem that cuts across all levels of expertise and understanding because I have trained law students, new lawyers, public defenders with 25 years of experience, people who rep have represented clients on death row and argued capital cases in the you know court highest courts of their state, like appellate lawyers who are just brilliant geniuses who should be sitting on the Supreme Court. Like this, it does not matter. I mean, I've also trained non-lawyers who have their own expertise. I have spoken to highly educated, highly intelligent people who literally will be like, I have this envelope from my loan servicer and I can't even open it. I'm quaking with fear because I am so afraid to make a mistake. I am, I'm so overwhelmed by the emotion and the shame of my debt. I feel like fr they're frozen, right? And they cannot get out of it. And, and that situation is the fault of servicers because every time a borrower picks up the phone to call their servicer, you know, nine times out of 10 or more likely than not, they're going to get an answer that is incomplete, false, like outright false, or just not helpful. And, and so like when I train people, a lot of my training is to unpack that, like unpack that emotion, unpack that history and to sort of say like, okay, now we've got to sort of release ourselves from that past when we've got to be, take pragmatic steps and here are the practical steps going forward. And so like the number one thing that I tell people, and a lot of times I'm training criminal defense attorneys or public defenders. So, you know, I usually start with a little bit of a joke where I just say like, you have to understand who the loan servicer, what the, the financial interests of the loan servicers are antithetical to you, you getting debt cancellation. So it's kind of like when we represent our clients and we tell our clients, like, don't talk to the cops, right? Like, for years and years and years, you know, in New York City, we have arraignments within 24 hours of people's arrest. So, you know, it's just like on TV, you go into court, your client comes in. Hi, I'm Jane Fox. I'm Legal Aid Society. I'm going to be your lawyer today. 
start talking about the client. There's, you know, in the cell, they're telling you the story of what happened when they got arrested. Oh, but, you know, detective so-and-so was so nice to me. Detective so-and-so got me Chinese food and a Coke and told me if I just told the truth and told him everything that happened, he was going to call the judge and he might get my case dismissed. So like, um, I get, he called the judge, right? And I'm going to get my case dismissed. And, you know, you have to, you don't laugh because you understand that your client has been deceived, but it's a similar thing, just like the police are not there to get your case dismissed, right? A loan servicer is not there necessarily to help you get your debt canceled. That's the subtext. And so people need to sort of understand that subtext when they pick up the phone to call their servicers. And the, and the good thing is that now there are much better resources. So I always tell people, before you reach for the phone to call your servicer, put the phone down and go to studentaid.gov because 99% of the questions that a borrower might have about student loans can be answered there. They do not actually need to call their servicer. And now, now the website actually has a number of things that are like certain functionality where you know previously you might've had to call your loan servicer um, to accomplish certain th things and you don't need to anymore. Like for instance, applying for cons consolidation, applying for an income-driven repayment program, or even just looking at the different income-driven repayment programs and seeing what um, the formulas are, applying for PSLF, like all of those things that in the past you couldn't do without calling your loan servicer, you can now do through the Department of Ed's website. So I always just, if there's like one thing that people take away from this, it's in this conversation about servicers is that you really do not need to call your servicer pretty much most of the time. There are a few very specific things that only your servicer can do. And usually that has to do with processing if you were to request a certain number of months of forbearance and things like that. But just general run-of-the-mill management of your student loans um, or enrolling in some of these programs, you do not need to pick up the phone to call your servicer. And you are much better off going to the Department of Ed's website to read the information, take time with it before you click anything, you know, make any decisions, but to really just read the information. And if you do have to call your loan servicer, I just tell people to make sure that you take some notes, you know, kind of think of it in a lawyerly way, right? Ask who you're speaking to, ask their name, make some notes of the conversation you had. Who did you speak to? What did you talk about? What did they say? And to make sure that you're kind of recording as you go. Because again, one of the things that the Department of Ed is, is doing a better job at is creating ways for borrowers to get, at least with PSLF, to sort of have, if they are, were rejected from the program, there is now a better path to get that rejection, an appeal, sort of an appeals process to get that reviewed. So I always tell people like, just be aware of who you're speaking to and take some notes. And then if they tell you something that doesn't seem right or seems confusing, you know, compare and contrast that with the information that is on Ed's website, because there's just so much misinformation and you know, people really do make these phone calls and then they get bad information and then they give up 
unnecessarily. But thanks for asking about servicers because that's a huge part of this problem. From what I'm hearing, it's almost like you're treating it as though you're preparing for litigation, right? You're researching the issue before you go in. You're documenting the potential harms that are happening. You're making those records of who did I speak to? What is their representative number if there is one? What was the context of the conversation? Maybe you're emailing it to yourself so you have a timestamp when that conversation occurred. So I guess advocate and litigate as aggressively for yourself as you would for your clients. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of what I train on, especially when I speak to new lawyers who are coming into the program, are ways in which to sort of automate as much of this process as possible to make to understand the rules so that you don't have to take this like litigious footing because you just know like look I've set up my loan payments in such a way things are sort of like auto debiting I'm 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 downloading my payment records once a year to sort of I know I've got I know that should anything happen I can prove what I've done I have clear records and also to especially when it comes to a program like PSLF, to just take some time with it and read the information. You know, you don't have to be a lawyer to figure it out. And I think it's worth it. At least, I mean, look, I hope that in the future, we're not even having this conversation anymore because higher education is free and we've canceled everyone's student debt. But in today's day and age, what I would say is a little bit of time invested to sort of dispel the fear can go a long way because like all things information is power so you know particularly when it comes to pslf while being a lawyer helps and you can do the extremely lawyerly thing of reading the statute right because it's a law and like anything in in law, right? What's the first thing a good lawyer does? Read the statute. You can do that. You can also read, you know, what are essentially like the distilled form of the statute, which is the PSLF form. So I always tell people the PSLF form itself is a six page form. And pages three through six, that sort of fine print, that tells you almost everything you need to know about the program because it defines all the terms. And it kind of lays out what needs to be done and just to sort of familiarize yourself with that and to really unpack it. And there are more organizations now that offer training around student debt to sort of break down these programs. I mean, it's like my dream, what I, what I think schools should be doing is, you know, I really, it, this is like a, a place where a financial aid office of a college or a university could play a huge, huge role, which is you know, educating their students, like you took student debt to come to our university to get a degree. And when you walk out the door, you're going to be in repayment. And how do you manage that? And how do you get enrolled? And what are the programs? And there's a huge vacuum there that I think colleges and universities could do a, go a long way in preparing people for paying their loans when they walk out, you know, like they're the ones who, um, put the $50,000 a year or $75,000 a year price tag on that degree, the least they could do is offer, you know, a, a hour long seminar with some free pizza in the student lounge to tell people how to do it and how to not default. 
and not to contradict any of that, but I will say that in the sort of advocacy work that Jane and I do, you know, a lot of what we do is try to not put the onus on the borrower, right? You shouldn't have to have a lawyerly toolkit to figure out what's going on here. It shouldn't be that hard. And a lot of this can either be you know, automated or have the onus shifted onto the sophisticated parties who are repeat players as opposed to the borrower who's just trying to figure it out. And I think borrower education is always great. But there are some things like the servicing issues that, you know, you can't educate your way out of being scammed, right? You can't educate your way out of being discriminated against. You can't educate your way out of a broken system that puts sort of profit over people. So it takes, you know, it's a multi-pronged approach, right? The system fundamentally needs to be better. Yes, you know, we want folks to take ownership of their accounts and over the financial decisions they're making, but they should ultimately be offered fair choices, not a series of bad choices. And so a lot of, again, of the advocacy work that we do is making that system a bit fair for borrowers who find themselves in it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the the complexities of the system are baked that are baked in currently. So many of them are completely unnecessary and could be smoothed over by government. So you know, until we reach that, until we achieve that, for sure. And you know, there are some resources. I don't know if like I just want to give a plug to one great resource in New York, which is an organization called EdCap that offers free student loan counseling for New York City residents. And they have a toll-free number and they have a great website. And so- New York uh, State, they have gone statewide. Oh, so. oh they've gone statewide, great. They got yeah. the funding, okay. So they off, So if your listeners are in New York State, they should definitely check out, um, I believe the website is ed, edcap.org. And they you can actually talk to a real person. And that's very rare in the student debt world to sort of get that one-on-one free counseling. Obviously, there are people out there who are happy to take your money, but it's a great resource in New York State. And if it doesn't exist in your state, then, you know, it's definitely, it it should be offered everywhere. But um, for New Yorkers, it's, I'm always telling people, call EdCap, you know, take advantage of, of it because they're a very trusted source. Thanks again for sharing all those resources. We're definitely going to be posting them with today's episode. The two of you, as mighty as you are, are only two of you. What can our listeners be doing to help support your work in terms of advocacy changes until we hit that point that colleges and all the debts have been canceled? Well, I will give a plug for one more organization, which is Debt Collective. So Debt Collective is an activist organization and they have a debtor's union and they have really taken on a lot of the activist side of this issue of canceling student debt and just canceling other forms of debt. So Debt Collective is uh, kind of came out of Occupy Wall Street and has sort of built since then. And they, you know, they've just done tremendous work in terms of organizing debtors and really come from this perspective of a lot of the things that we spoke about, which is that, you know, this, what we spoke about in the beginning, which is forgiveness versus cancellation, right? What, what do we have to forgive? Like that the thrust of their activist work is really about the fact that education is a human right, that education is, should be a free public good, that student debt is completely immoral and illegitimate, and we should work to cancel it. And really they, they do a great job among many organizations who make this connection that, you know, the 
movement to cancel student debt is really just the first leg of the race, right? Because canceling student debt is about the broader movement to make higher education free again in the United States. It used to be not entirely free, but much, much, much more affordable in the 50s and 60s and the early 70s. And we kind of made decisions along the way to defund higher education at the federal and state level and put the onus on individual borrowers to finance their education as opposed to looking at it as the way that we look at like K through 12 education, which is that it's a public good and you just get to go to school, right? And higher education, you know, could be returned to that status in our society. Um, And the first way to do that is we have to get people out of their current debt. We have to fit because that's the most pressing crisis, because that's the crisis that is sending people into personal bankruptcy and default and just really, really dire financial circumstances. So that's the first step of the much bigger movement to make higher education free. So I would definitely give a plug for Debt Collective. They have some individual chapters in like cities and states. And, you know, if you just want to see what they're doing, like great follow on social media. And, you know, the other, so, but I'll let that, so that's my number one recommendation for how to get involved. Winston. Yeah, I think that, you know, fundamentally people just need to, some people have already done this, but appreciate that this is a political issue and that it's a reflection of people's experience and their the way that society treats them. And we should frame it that way. So as folks go about their day and interact with federal, state, and local elected representatives, they should be asking them what they're doing on student debt issues and let them know that this is a priority that both reflects that student debt is not a wealthy person's problem. I mean, I think there's this, this trope that student debt issues are, are all, you know, lawyers and doctors. First of all, not all lawyers and doctors are wealthy people, and we need to be supporting the lawyers and doctors who are going into the underserved communities and serving uh, lower-income communities. But second of all, four in 10 borrowers don't graduate, so they have debt, but not a degree, right? So there's this, this is definitely something that affects low-income communities and communities of color disproportionately. So making this you know, as, as important a political issue as other issues that affect our lives and that we demand action from our elected officials and no tier of government is powerless, right? The federal government controls a lot of the student loan debt. The states, as we've already said, can step in to make servicers are acting appropriately. And we've seen cities as service providers provide phenomenally, uh, phenomenal counseling opportunities, do reports and studies, submit amicus briefs to the Supreme Court. Even, even cities have a lot of authority, soft and hard power to weigh in on this. But all of those tiers of elected government really need to hear from constituents that this is a priority for them. And this is certainly true for candidates, right? We want to get someone in office at every tier of government who understands the needs of the people, including their economic needs with respect to student loan debt. So I encourage everyone who goes, you know, everyone should be more politically engaged and those who have the time and ability to do so, certainly. Uh, And when you're at those candidate forums, you know, ask questions about student loan debt. If you go to see your current elected official, tell them what you need from them. Tell them to support whatever policies are at play in the given moment. To, to make your lives a little bit more financially stable um, by reducing your student debt burden. Yeah, and one other thing, just to give a, a plug, like for the third, is it the third rail? I don't know, the fourth rail, fourth estate, something, but also labor, right? So a lot of the organizing that I've done around student debt has been through the my labor union, right? And I think that more and more, if you are the member of a union, 
then you need to be asking yourself, what is my union doing about student debt? Because student debt affects all so many workers at all levels, whether they're professionals, whether they're working in manufacturing, you know, whether they're working in higher education, we're seeing more, you know, Rutgers University just went on a huge strike that was resolved just over the weekend, right? So we're seeing organized labor in lots of different forms of employment and all of those forms of employment, more often than not, the the union members are going to have some kind of student debt, whether that's debt that they acquired for a professional degree or a trade school or anything in between, or they may just be a member who, like Winston just referenced, like did a year or two of college and did not complete their degree, but they still have debt. And so I think that I would love to see more organizing by labor as a political force around the issues of student debt. And we saw that one of the major forces behind bringing sort of these more recent fixes to PSLF, a huge driving force behind that was the AFT and teachers unions, because so many of their members qualify for PSLF. So it was an issue that they got organized on, on a national level because their individual members had this, you know, had this need. Um, So again, if you, if you're a union member, student debt is a workplace issue. What's your employer doing to assist employees with student debt? And what is your union doing to educate members and help them deal with their student debt? Well, my goodness, this conversation has flown by and I certainly feel more relieved at the end of it than when we first went into it. So I want to thank you both for that piece personally and professionally. Before we jump off for today, any final thoughts for our listeners? Though I I will say, I hope you come back and join us later in the year after we've got a SCOTUS decision and things have changed once again. Yeah, just don't wait. You know, go to studentdebt.gov, go to consumerstudentdebt.org, tell other people to do it, destigmatize talking about debt, but certainly don't sit on your hands or assume that the SCOTUS decision is going to resolve all of the, of the issues here. So I think that that is my sort of pithy response is don't wait, sort of go self-educate starting today. Absolutely. And also, win or lose at the Supreme Court, just know that the people who are working on this issue are not stopping, right? Like our work certainly is not going to end right. in June or, you know, whatever, whatever happens. So the media might frame it that way, <laughs> Right. Because it's like a nice little end to a story that a journalist is working on, but that's ne- absolutely not what is going to happen for the people who work on this issue every single day and who have been working on this issue for you know decades. And so again, like don't lose hope. Like one way or another, we're coming for it. It's getting canceled. <laughs> Can't wait for that day. Well, Winston, Jane, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you as always to our listeners. Please like, share, and continue to find us on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs.